You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm joined by our co-hosts, Elisa and Yvette, two national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacity, not on behalf of any agency or company, and our friends, Andrew Barreen, a longtime national security lawyer with deep experience in cyber threats to national security. And friend of the pod. Friend of the cast. (laughs) Our special guest today is our friend Megan Stiefel, founder and CEO of Silicon Harbor Consultants, senior policy counsel at the Global Cyber Alliance, and former director of international cyber policy at the National Security Council for the White House. Megan is joining us from Charleston, South Carolina. All right. Welcome both of you. (laughs) Yes, welcome you guys. Thanks. All right. Hello, NatSec followers here at NSLT. We've created a safe space for national security nerds and anyone else who wants to better understand national security law. And if you read the Russian election interference report as soon as the link was active, or you pre-ordered a copy of The Cult of the Dead Cow because cyber intrigue is your thing, just know we understand you. We're back today for the first in a three-part series on national sovereignty, the foundation of national security. Parts one and two will be the long-awaited Senate report on Russian election interference. So this was a bipartisan report that was years in the making, and it found some startling things. First, Russians systematically tried to hack the election databases of all 50 states. And then, without irony, the Russian diplomats here in the United States requested to serve as international elections observers, even though, one, the Russians were hacking our elections, and... Two, Russia had not asked to be observers through normal channels, and... Three, Russia had previously refused to serve in the official observation mission. Little ham-handed there. Hmm. Uh, and a co- of course, aging voting equipment, lack cybersecurity across the country. These things have rendered elections vulnerable to foreign efforts to interfere. Asymmetrical influence campaigns are not new. Uh, and so you can read this report that we're re- going to be referencing throughout this episode. We will hyperlink it in the notes to this cast. So look there. All right. Megan and Andrew, if you had to state the overall conclusion of the report, what would you say, Megan? Uh, shocked but not surprised that's a fair <laughs> statement so and I'll, I won't be so flip but uh, it's not surprising given we all know that the Russian Federation and the USSR have used active measures for decades if not maybe even centuries so that's not surprising um, it's also not surprising because Russia is very threatened by the unregulated uh, way in which the internet operates and is governed and so it's not surprising to me anyways, that they found a way to turn that unregulated characteristic against the open Internet's biggest champions, that being the U.S. and other democracies. Um, sadly, I'm also not surprised at the scope of the targeting, which is to say that if you read the report, you'll see that all 50 states were at least probed, and then we could get into some of the juicier details in a bit. Um, I'm shocked and saddened, however, that more of our political leadership is not similarly concerned about the threat and actively working to mitigate it. Yeah, and, and um, this is Andrew. I, you know, I think I would look initially to the report's findings for my uh, big conclusions um, to report. Uh, but, but I think in addition to the geographic diversity of all 50 states uh, that Megan just addressed, 
the fundamental finding was that the Russian government had directed extensive activity covering at least four years between 2014 uh, and into 2017 against U.S. election infrastructure. Um, and so aside from, again, the geographic diversity and cybersecurity, we talk about attack surfaces. Uh, we talk about uh, the system systems. And as Congress or as the Senate defined that in this report, uh, they defined that as all equipment, processes, and systems related to voting, tabulating, reporting, uh, and even voter registration. Uh, so I, I think that the, the number one conclusion is that uh, there was extensive activity. Uh, it covered not only a wide geography, but it also covered uh, an extremely um, a wide number of, a diverse number of vectors that an actor could use to attack these systems uh, or even use social engineering uh, to attack integrity and trust in these systems. So, um, Andrew, can you start, and then Megan, uh, can you follow up? Can you talk about the nature of these threats and the vulnerabilities that made it possible for Russia to poke around in the voting systems of all 50 states? Sure, and I think one thing I would add also in in terms of the findings is important to note that the committee also uh, reported they'd seen no evidence that actual votes were changed or uh, or votes were manipulated uh, in that tabulation phase. Um, That said... As with, sadly or I guess uh, fortunately, cybersecurity lends itself to a lot of military analogies. Uh, And in military operations, typically one would conduct a reconnaissance or they would do some intelligence gathering and they would determine where weaknesses were. Uh, It's why military forces take pictures of Navy ships and oceans and the number of uh, airplanes on airstrips and how many vehicles are moving infantry troops around. Uh, Similarly, um, I guess what I would what I would argue is it's possible this was reconnaissance gathering, probing, uh, and investigatory phase uh, before an attack was launched. And I can't speak to motives. It may also be possible that they wanted to be discovered uh, with the intent of of uh, diminishing trust in U.S. election systems. Wow, uh, Megan, do you have anything to add? Sure. Um, so I think there's couple of, of observations that I would offer. First is that, um, as, as I think everybody knows, the, the, the architecture, if you will, for elections processes is very um, distributed, which is to say that we don't have one central database that sp- spans all 50 states where voter registration data is kept. It it's actually varies by state and in some cases down to the precinct level, which can be a very small um, number of people. Um, that in some cases can be a strength because then there isn't a central point of weakness, which is to say that you gain access to one place and then you have access to everything. At the same time, though, it limits the ability of um, some of these smaller uh, electoral offices to scale uh, security and take advantage of things like the cloud. Um, but I think it's also, it's easy, I think, just to, I'm not at all trying to diminish the threat by saying the following, but I think it's, we need to place elections infrastructure into the broader infrastructure context, which we will in a little bit. But, um, you know, the aging state of ICTs in elections infrastructure is not unique, um, nor is the the infrastructure means the, the equipment, but nor is the lack of expertise and personnel. Um, what's unique here about this area is the broader impact that ha- a compromise of the elections infrastructure can have on democracy. So a company suffers a data breach and we are asking if PII was compromised, 
we should also sidebar ask if IP or trade secrets were also accessed, but that's a different podcast. Um, here we ask, um, and we wonder that, you know, we, we worry about the impact that votes changed um, or registration databases compromise can have not only on the election, but also um, locally, but also federally. Uh, and the impact there isn't limited by the outcome of that specific election, but also trusts in the electoral process more broadly. But as Andrew said, there's no evidence that votes were changed or databases were altered. Uh, and that's an important point to emphasize. I think it's easy to, I think, sometimes criticize the, the officials who run these elections or kind of wonder why more hasn't been done. But the fact of the matter is they did pretty well, um, it, given what the resources that they had, I guess. Um, and, you know, I think it's not clear, as, as Andrew said, I agree, you know, we don't, motives are, are hard to say. Um, was it to know where they might go next? Was it to put us on notice? Was it to hold something that we treasure at risk? It could be all of those. It could be any of those. So those are my quick thoughts that, you know, we're, we need to recognize this as a, a symptom of a broader problem in part. So let's let's break it down for the listeners who haven't yet read the report. I know every single one of our listeners will read every word and footnote, of course, but um, one of the things that really struck me, Megan, um, it, when I looked at this, uh, thinking about this from the policy perspective, um, another thing that was diffuse wasn't just the voting systems, but it was the, the entities that were providing information to state election officials. But just to be more precise, um, what, what the federal government and what some uh, organizations were in a position to do was to provide information about IP addresses that might be probing the system or particular vulnerabilities, the idea being that the state uh, election officials could patch a system against uh, the particular known entity, IP address, other, you know, patch a vulnerability, whatever it might be. What struck me, though, was that information was coming at these individual states, at these long-suffering state employees, from all over the place, um, from the information sharing uh, and analysis centers, and it looks like there was one multi, the multi-state ISAC. Then there was DHS, um, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI. They talked about the NCIC fusion centers. I mean, and then um, they talked about other uh, entities, the abbreviations or acronyms for which were listed toward the end of the report, but EAC, NASS, NASED. That seems like a lot of information flying at states, and it frankly sounds... Um, confusing. There was a, a quote on page 57 of the report by a state official, and it, the states, in most instances, with the exception of Illinois, were only identified by number. So we don't really know which states were um, unaware of the fact that their systems have been compromised and the like. But State Seven's officials said that uh, the state was not worried about larger counties when it comes to network security, but, quote, we are worried about the part-time registrar who is also the town attorney and the town accountant and is working out of a 17th century jail. Uh, what are these employees supposed to do? I mean, frankly, this sounds like a mess. It sounds like they were taking incoming fire almost. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of continue to, to well, I will, um, say that, you know, we read headlines about corporate America struggling to defend its, its networks. You can imagine that at the state level and in the, in the even smaller um, county and precinct level, that the, the number of resources and the amount of expertise is even far uh, more constrained and, and resource um, uh, weak. Um, 
So if you, you know, if you look at the number of ransomware attacks over the past couple of months and years, you know, Baltimore, Atlanta, um, the, the limits, we already talked a little bit about, you know, how they are less able as a small entity or even an individual to take advantage of scale, the security that comes from scale. Um, but also, you know, yes, there was a, there was a diffuse amount of, or a broad amount of information that was coming from a number of different vectors. And, um, I can, I empathize with the, the folks on the receiving end. Um, you know, you've got every, you know, six, seven, eight different entities knocking on your door. I think in some ways, while there's certainly, um, improvement to be made at the federal level and saying we need to have one entity and I think we're getting in a better place to be now looking at the role that DHS is taking in this space. But there's a little bit, I think, of we're going to send as many people as we can to deliver the message so that hopefully the message is received and action is taken. Um, but it is, it is uh, um, challenging and concerning that, um, you know, we have potentially one single person who probably you know, is wearing multiple hats and doesn't know know from security, so to speak. Um, you know, I think that the, another challenge here is that even if equipment is identified as having a vulnerability, if it's already been certified, and in most states within a certain time frame, I think it's uh, like 180 days with the election, don't quote me exactly on that, um, the equipment can't be altered. It's already been certified for the election. So yeah, while in... <laughs> what's that? I, I didn't realize that that was the case, that 180 yeah. days out. So the, the problem with that, of course, is in 180 days, a threat actor could certainly identify a vulnerability quite easily. Yes. Um, so, you know, I think initially this was a, a, a policy set in place to protect the process, but in the case of security, it may actually frustrate it. Um, there's also, you know, we've talked a little bit about, or folks have read about um, the few number of manufacturers, equipment manufacturers in this place, in this space, excuse me, um, so even if there's a diversity network architecture, you know, St. Joe County, where I grew up, um, has a different way that they connect their voter registration database to the polling system, et cetera. Um, if it all comes back down to three major pieces of equipment and some nation state figures out how to manipulate that, that equipment, then they, the nation state can scale that type of um, vulnerability and leverage it to, to pose a really significant threat. I think there's also a challenge, you know, many folks – I uh, think that, oh, you know, my, my pick, your, pick your part of the elections infrastructure is not, a, it's not connected to the internet. Well, that's only, a, that's a somewhat limited defense because if you're using thumb, thumb drives to move data, uh, voter registration between machines, you've opened up another threat vector. How have you maintained those thumb drives? Where did you even get them? Did you get it at some conference at, you know, the, the, I don't want to pick on any of the, I won't name any specific <laughs> associations. Um, I don't want to make any enemies. Um, but, you know, it's, it's to highlight to folks that, that there are other ways, even if your machine is, is perceived not to be connected to the Internet. And I think um, one thing I wanted to highlight for folks is that, which we're going to get into in a second, but the, the Center for Internet Security actually put out a handbook for elections infrastructure security. And I think in there, I remember reading over the summer that I think it was in there or somewhere else that, oh, you know, there was a state that or a precinct that had maintained that their their equipment had never been connected to the Internet, except that actually one day it was. And therein lied the problem. Therein lay the problem. So. Um, so they connected their equipment for one day and decided that because it wasn't connected sort of persistently, that that didn't count. Essentially. Oh, um, OK. So it's, you know, philosophy. lots of things to learn. <laughs> wow. 
What about um, the fact that we don't have, uh, you know, sort of a widespread um, implementation of paper backups in our in our voting machines? Well, I, mean, I think you just asked kind of the $100,000 easy question uh, is, you know, in, in, in terms of regardless of where an attack came from on the election system, how would you um, manage an auditable trail? Um, and I, you know, I, I have seen some advocacy for uh, a push toward leaning on the states and the, the local election officials to uh, create a verifiable paper record in addition to an electronic vote count. Um, and maybe I'm simple, but to me it does seem like that would be um, Maybe a good a, idea. <laughs> it might be a good idea. And I, I mean, I, I know some people worry about a slippery slope that now we have hanging chads. Um, and, and we've been through that in, in, um, in earlier presidential election cycles uh, made famous by uh, Bush v. Gore. But, um, uh, you know, perhaps there's that. value in an auditable paper trail um, as a backup. To It would be harder to change a lot of paper votes than it would be to change ones and zeros. Indeed. At least there was something to count in that right. situation. Well, yeah, and and correct to... me if I'm wrong, but didn't some of the states say, well, we had paper ballots, meaning they had a receipt, and it turns out something they hand the you know, person who's voted, right? And then they can just, if you know, crumple it up, stick it in their pocket. Well, I think, I mean, I th- actually, as we're having this conversation, it occurs to me why, as a country, we view this as critical infrastructure. Uh, because the business of democracy really is the business of elections. That's how yours and my votes as American citizens get counted. Uh, it's something that we fundamentally need to think through. Um, it's how we govern the, the business, the administration of the state. Um, and certainly there's, you know, there's even private sector incentive for how they manage proxy vote for uh, corporate stakeholders, right? The sure. same companies that do this for public elections also make similar uh, types of systems for, uh, for, for other non-governmental elections. So, um, you know, I, I just, yeah, I, I think we're, we're striking on the importance of why this is a critical infrastructure uh, attack if a foreign power were to take action uh, beyond this this uh, discovered or reported in this report probing activity. So what are your thoughts about I mean, on the paper ballot backup? I mean, it seems that it would be helpful if we had more sort of standards, like federal standards that say this is the sort of minimum. And I know we do have some of those, but they don't seem to be doing the job of creating a lot of security around this critical component of our democracy. Um, today, the you know Federal Elections Commission announced that there was an, another commissioner was leaving, and there are now three commissioners, and they have no quorum. And so um, they will not be able to do things like launch new investigations and things like that. I mean, that's a tangential issue, but it's still, they are the governing body over our federal elections, and for them not to be functioning at full capacity, they were run, already running below their, you know, their legally mandated um, number, right? They were at four, and now with three, they're not going to be able to be as effective. So wow. we're concerned about the way that these standards could even be promulgated if we got got our heads around doing something like that. Well, I think it's important to note, I mean, I don't want to drift too far ahead in the report, but um, the very first recommendation uh, of the report is to 
reinforce the state's primacy in running elections, which they then footnote to make very clear uh, is that it's up to the states to determine those security standards and enforce those security regimes on the elections. And I think the the other recommendations uh, come down to the federal government doing a better job of educating, which I think this report starts to do, uh, what the threats are to the systems, the nature of the threats. Um, you know, I, I, to some degree, it may or may not matter who the threats are, right? Oh, sure. Um, but, but to know where the vulnerabilities are so that remedial action can be taken. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I would argue also there's, there's great value in this being part of the public record and the public discourse because... It's up to the voter to lean on their state government to have a more effective security regime for elections in their home state. I would also say, I mean, I the, I don't think the two things we're saying are inconsistent. Right. I think that the federal government could play a role in setting model standards and, mm-hmm. you know, setting an example for the states to follow or at least for them to reference, especially when you're talking about 17th century jails and people on, like, the local election mm-hmm. level. And they they might not have... picture the guy, pale, sitting under sure. a flickering right. fluorescent they, light. They, well, and I think... I mean, they might not have the, you know, in every single county jurisdiction that's running an election that and these elections even on the local level are extremely consequential right we might not have the knowledge base that's there so just having something to point to might be helpful sure and and and, i mean and at the end of the day uh every state is responsible for its own standards and we get we get to the same problem we see in a lot of other kind of balkanized areas of law or policy or enforcement where standards are so awesome everybody should have their own. Um, and we, we see that in other areas as well. So, uh, you know, in, in terms of even communicating threat intelligence and, and how, how that gets formatted and shared between uh, parties. So, um, yeah, I, I guess, I, guess I, I, if you ask me for my opinion, I, I am happy to see that this is being reported publicly. I'm happy to see that it starts the dialogue. Um, and, you know, if, if the first step is understanding um, this starts to paint a picture that each of those 50 state systems is at risk and is being targeted by a state actor. Uh, and it will uh, therefore necessitate a conversation about what is the role of the federal government. I hope we address that a little in our podcast because I, th- I think there are some things the federal government can do that maybe aren't related to creating architecture models or mandating software installs, uh, but that could, that could definitely reduce these types of threats to American elections. Yeah, Megan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, two things. One, I think, you know, in the, at the end of the day, I hate to say this, some people really may come out with the long knives at me, um, but (laughs) elections infrastructure is, when I go cast my ballot, that the the machine there is, if it's connected to the internet, it it is a thing of the internet. It's part of the internet of things. And so NIST has, you know, recently launched a process to identify a set of baseline capabilities that IoT devices ought to have at this point, you know, in the U.S. we're talking about that being a sort of a voluntary practice. But, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I would agree with the, the, reports outcome that this needs to stay states need to ultimately have the the say here i do wonder if there's opportunity though for sort of a federal kind of baseline requirement and then it's up to the states as to how they want to implement those baselines you know so what would those sort of baseline capabilities be well you know secure configuration requirements two factor you know we can get into some of the recommendations which would align with some of the with the capabilities that i would suggest to be 
implemented. But um, I don't know if you you mentioned, and I think I forgot to answer this earlier, when we talked about kind of all of the entities that were coming at the different state election officials. And I, I do think it's um, important to, to spend a, a couple of seconds, maybe if you want, um, talking about the MSI SAC and the EII SAC and kind of where those um, – what those organizations are about and, and their expertise and what, what they've kind of grown to since 2016. You know, uh, we're throwing these, we, we're throwing these things around ISAC and I, I mean, I think I explained that stands for information sharing and analysis center, but what the heck are those things? Where did they come from? Yeah, they are um, spawned, if you will, of, um, they actually in some cases predated um, the, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, there's discussion back in the late 90s of creating an ISAC, and I think there may actually have been um, in PPD 63. I can't remember if there's a specific reference to ISAC, but I'm, and I don't have it right in front of me, but I think that there is. In any event, 2002, we, we have the Department of Homeland Security stand up, and these information and analysis centers, information sharing analysis centers, begin to develop. And the MS ISAC, the multi-state ISAC, it was one of the first, and it is funded by DHS, um, and that is a, the information sharing analysis center that feeds state and local officials with um, indica- indicators and other types of, of um, what we call CTIs and other kind of non-content um, related data to help secure their networks. Um, shortly, let's see, I think then in 2000, uh, it's based out of the Center for Internet Security, and I should caveat um, because I am a senior policy counsel at the Global Cyber Alliance, um, although the views today are just mine. Um, CIS is one of the founding three entities that stood up to GCA, which is a nonprofit, so I, I should make that clear. Um, CIS is based in, in Albany, New York, Center for Internet Security. Um, and following 2016, uh, the MSISAC, the multi-state ISAC, stood up something called the EIISAC, which is the Elections Infrastructure Information Sharing Analysis Center. So it's also based out of Albany. Um, so one of the more well-known ISACs um, is the FSISAC, which is the Financial Services Information Sharing Analysis Center, and it has a, I don't know that I would, it would be called a sister entity, but it's FSARC. Um, these, the, the, that um, information sharing analysis center is one of the most mature, if not the most mature um, center that most of the big banks use and a lot of others in the financial services industry to share information related to cybersecurity. And I think everyone would say that it's a very valuable resource. Um, but just from an organizational standpoint, they are voluntarily, they're, they're membership-based organizations, membership is voluntary, they are nonprofits. I would argue that that's a good thing because we don't want people monetizing data that in my personal view ought to be part of kind of the public good because we need to have sharing information is a good thing because it's kind of the herd immunity um, concept where if, if, if you know information that would help protect me, I ought to protect me because then there, I don't want to reinfect you through some other um, relationship that we may not even know we have. Um, that said, I think it's also important, you know, if, if for listeners who are running their own enterprise networks, so you, you don't have, you basically have your own domain and your, your email service is based off of, you know, bank of xyz.com. Um, you know, I think it's important to become a member of your sector ISAC. And I should back up and say that, that ISACs are, are sectoral based. So there, there could be 16 of them sector based, meaning based off of the critical infrastructure sectors. There is also another beast out there called an ISAO, um, an information sharing and analysis organization, which was more formally recognized in the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act of 2015. 
ice house um are not necessarily sector based they could be threat based so there could in some cases be for example you know the uh panda bear isau or pick your threat um isau that could be established and importantly um there are some liability protections that that flow from sharing information through isaws and isacs and and that's also separate for a separate podcast but i think if you're if you're running your own network it's important to become a member of one of these organizations so that you can be as protected as possible. Um, just a quick few facts on figures on the EII-SAC. I think it's important to, to give some some credit here where credit is due. Um, there are nearly 2,000 members of the EII-SAC, so election officials in all 50 states and nearly 1,600 local governments. Um, and recently, uh, one of the things that um, the EII-SACs offer and, and uh, has has become available through the multi-state ISAC are these things called Albert sensors, um, which is an uh, intrusion detection system. Um, what is an ID? So otherwise known as an IDS. And that basically is a system that says it gets fed information like bad IP addresses that are trying to connect to a particular server. Uh, and it can notice and send a report that the, the particular bad IP address was trying to connect to the server. It can't necessarily prevent that connection, but it can at least log that connection to then send a report. And hopefully there's somebody to receive the report and somebody to take an action on that report. Um, but again, you know, if we had all the money in the world, things could be much better. This I think is a positive step in a positive direction. Um, I guess with respect to the ISEDX, so I would, you know, I guess I would, push back just a little bit on that because um, I think one of the things that is true of some of them in particular, you you reference FSISAC, their membership, their, that one for example, financial services industry, but um, many of those organizations have great, you know, have different kinds of membership. A more expensive membership may get you more information. A less expensive membership may give you less. If it's a poor state, maybe they don't want to get the, you know, more enhanced membership, but I still hear a lot of different um, sources of information and it just really feels like somehow all this stuff needs to be consolidated and just as a matter of public policy just be communicated out to these states so that they can take immediate action. It still feels like that stuff is is all over the place and there needs to be maybe one funnel or maybe two funnels. Um, yeah, I mean I think that's Sorry, go ahead. I, I'm sorry, it just doesn't, it still seems like you're, you're just asking a lot of state employees um, that was my big takeaway. So, I mean, I well, sorry, it's, it's Andrew again. The the um, there, I believe there's already been two uh, conferences hosted by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence on uh, these issues, where they gave temporary security clearances to state election officials, uh, invited them to the intelligence community campus here in the Washington D.C. area, uh, and they were delivered a brief on a classified brief on the nature of these threats with more detailed information and how to share. Um, and again, not to skip ahead, but I think that's that's one of the more concrete action items that the federal government can take uh, very safely with, with, within the constitutional balance of state and federal power. And that is to communicate that information to those people uh, that at the state level that are responsible for setting those standards, developing those architectures, uh, defending against those threats. Um, and so, um, you know, I, th I think this, this report actually comes out after both of those conferences have been held. Uh, the, the former director of national intelligence, Dan Coates, uh, 
appointed one senior intelligence official responsible for uh, threats to election security, uh, specifically with that information and threat information sharing mission. So um, to kind of kind of bifurcate it, yes, there's an architecture technology issue that largely sits in the state domain. Uh, however, the understanding of the threat and how the systems are being attacked and the existence of, of a very advanced uh, and well-funded, well-orchestrated series of attacks on these systems, um, that's, that is very safely within the purview of the federal government. I think we're seeing a lot of progress on that regard, even in advance of the release of this report by the Senate. So much more simply, I mean, it like what you're saying here is that somehow somebody at the state level could be cleared to understand that what they're seeing isn't not Jimmy in, in you know, his mom's basement four blocks away poking around with some pen testing tool, but Russia and moreover, Russian intelligence services. And then they could understand the gravity of the threat that they face and take maybe uh, stronger measures and take, more and right, rapid. And correct, and take these threats more seriously and understand what, the, what those vectors are. And we, you know, we don't know what's said inside of the classified meeting, but the existence and the fact that both those classified meetings were held and were attended by the state election officials, uh, I think should give us some, uh, I guess, confidence Certainly, that um, Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the U.S. intelligence community, with its foreign mission, is reporting on these threats to the states. Uh, in many ways, thinking of the states almost as a customer of their intelligence. Well, you maybe a yearly, bi-yearly, bi something more regimented, more regularized. Seems like it would be in order. What do you think? Well, I was going to ask a little bit about you know the tension between the state and federal government since the since Andrew brought it up. You know, just talking about like how um, often it is, is is sort of one of the details before we even get at the question of what that relationship should be. So, you know, if, for example, um, then-Secretary of Homeland Security uh, Jay Johnson had a conference call with state election officials where he mentioned ele election systems could be designated as criti critical infrastructure. And state leaders reacted poorly, um, misunderstanding what he meant and thinking that there was going to be a federal takeover of their systems. Um, but, you know, what what should that have looked like? What would have been an optimal way to, you know, finesse that relationship, that tension between state and federal? Well, I think what, one of the things we're observing is that um, we're evolving a new definition or, or I guess a new component of the definition of critical infrastructure. Um, historically, there have been some criminal code, uh, federal criminal code uh, sections that have made mention of it. One specifically uh, under uh, Title 18 was related, related to uh, getting training from foreign terrorist organizations. Um, and that's a felony. Don't get training from uh, foreign terrorist Noted. organizations. Don't provide them with training. Do, yeah, and, and do, do not receive nor give uh, training right. foreign terrorist organizations. Uh, however, they, they, they make it clear that critical infrastructure... Um, can include any kind of system or asset vital to national defense, national security, economic security, public health, or safety, including both regional, right, state, local infrastructure, and national infrastructure. Uh, and then another important aspect is they define that it can be either publicly or privately owned. Uh, so when we talk about some of these conversations about uh, if companies are manufacturing critical infrastructure in terms of election uh, components. Deep uh, old equipment, right? Um, <laughs> That, that those those may all, you know, they mentioned gas, oil, um, and, and energy right. systems, uh, water systems. Um, and, you know, perhaps I, th I think what 
what we will see is an acknowledgement that the lifeblood of democracy is the election system, and therefore it will also be treated as a critical infrastructure component um, and receive increased support from the federal government. Um, and, and I think one of the things that, that probably is why it's the number one recommendation about reinforcing state primacy is we do have to honor the Constitution's uh, balance of state uh, and federal power. Um, but uh, but, I, but I, I think we're moving in the right direction with um, the increased awareness and the increased education uh, on both of those regards and the increased acknowledgement that election infrastructure would be a component of critical infrastructure for all of these statutes. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. You can find links to the Black Letter Law, including the Senate report that we've been referencing, and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. Drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on Twitter at ABANATSEC, or on Facebook. We welcome your feedback. You can also find information about our upcoming events at americanbar.org slash NatSecurity. On September 17th, we'll be hosting a breakfast with Thomas Monheim, the general counsel of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, on the future of surveillance technology, including satellites. You can also learn about our annual conference, the Review of the Field of National Security Law, which will happen on November 7th and 8th in Washington, D.C. It's a two-day CLE conference, which will feature a lineup of expert practitioners in different national security law arenas. Find that online. Stay tuned for part two of this week's discussion with Andrew and Megan about critical infrastructure and election security next week. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Nat Sack.